Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full worth prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Bible Geek Time, and uh, I'm the uh, eponymous geek, uh, not the pompous geek, though that might be true too, but at any rate, Robert M. Price. And uh, before we get into a bunch of great questions, I want to make a reminder and an announcement. Uh, I have a new book out from Pitchstone Press called Jesus Christ Superstition. Uh, great cover design, if I do say so myself. Uh, and uh, this is um, a scrutiny of some important points of Christian theology, critiquing and uh, and sometimes uh, proposing new alternatives, uh, trying to get people out of the common pitfalls into which the theology plunges them. And I think you'll you'll get a kick out of it. Uh, and and a lot of it is also an analysis and critique of a number of features of conservative evangelical or fundamentalist piety that I think are non-biblical, which is something I don't always criticize people for. But uh, it, it's very ironic when the Bible is almost made a fetish that uh, things that are uh, perhaps of central importance in a type of Christianity wind up uh, being without any footing in the Bible. And um, so I deal with uh, with that stuff and uh, and uh, oh, certain aspects of piety as promoted by Watchman Nee and and others. If you have any personal background in fundamentalist uh, piety and spiritual life, I think you'll uh, find this uh, sort of enlightening. Uh, but uh, then the other thing I want to announce is the uh, appearance of the Journal of Higher Criticism, the new issue, which is volume 14, number three, and it is a, a, a translation, first time in English, of Schleiermacher's groundbreaking uh, open letter on the authorship of the so-called First Timothy, where he shows by uh, careful uh, lexical arguments, uh, word usages, and so on, that uh, the, the text simply could not have been written by Paul, if you take Paul, as Schleiermacher did, to be the actual author of the other epistles attributed to him. Uh, this was, I say, a real groundbreaking, one a real epic-making development in the higher criticism because uh, he he really blew the traditional authorship claim of first Timothy uh, out of the water and set the uh, the the stage for the eventual in fact it didn't take all that long scrutiny of all the other epistles attributed to Paul uh, showed the kind of argument you need to make to determine 
is this really by Paul or whoever else? Uh, and and it's very important. It's just amazing to me. It had never been translated uh, into English before. Uh, I uh, This took quite a while because I was approached by a great uh, New Testament scholar, great Schleiermacher scholar, Terence N. Tice, T-I-C-E, who translated a bunch of Schleiermacher works. And uh, he uh, approached me uh, about 25 years ago and invited me to do this translation for a series of new Schleiermacher translations. And uh, this program had already issued a number of notable volumes. It took I had limited time to work on it, so it took me about a year, as I remember, to finish the, the project a bit every day. And uh, then it was delayed, and delayed again. It was sort of like the parousia. It just kept on getting delayed for one reason or another. And uh, finally, a couple of months ago, I got word that due to the advanced age and the declining health of the editor of the series... No more books in it. Well, my translation had been done for a quarter of a stinking century, so I decided, look, I'm not giving up. We're using it in the Journal of Higher Criticism. So you can read this this, uh, brown-graking essay as well as uh, a great essay by Hermann Patch in Germany about uh, called the the fear of deuteropaulinism like the about the uh the hysterical reaction this piece got when it was published auf deutsch originally uh, very interesting and then there's an article by me called schleiermacher's dormant discovery in which i argue that uh, there are points he made that have been overlooked for a long time and they shed light uh on uh some interesting puzzles. And so I, I think I encourage you to uh, order them both from, from Amazon. I think uh, it'll be mighty helpful reading. Now, speaking of books um, and of my infamy, I started a, a critical work on the uh, called Resurrection and Reception about uh, the belief in the resurrection in the early church. Uh, do 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 the early Christians seem to have believed this story literally happened, or would they have taken it symbolically? And the Easter stories are compared with loads of material from contemporary Hellenistic religions showing that uh, this kind of thing wasn't new, and in most of the cases it's pretty clear people didn't take it literally Let's take a second look at the New Testament resurrection material. Very fascinating. Well, didn't have much time, but just in the first few pages, I was kind of startled to see Robert M. Price says, and then there's this quote uh, about uh, Justin Martyr and uh, whether certain words were of an apologetical or a rhetorical nature. And I thought, gee, I don't remember ever writing that. Uh, So I I looked up the footnote and there it was, Robert M. Price, so-and-so. And uh, I didn't recognize the title. I didn't recognize the title of the journal in which it appeared. I thought, what is going on? Did they have me confused with somebody else? Uh, uh, Is there another Robert M. Price writing in this field? Well, of course, either could have happened. I found another reference to the same work, same, uh, you know, non-me, Robert M. Price. And then I found uh, toward the end of the book, 
uh, a reference contrasting my approach, Robert Price in this case, with N.T. Wright, that we're like on opposite ends of the spectrum on the uh, resurrection stories. And this time, the reference was to my book, Jesus is Dead. So I'm, I wonder if the guy that wrote this book understood that we're two different Robert prices. Uh, and I'll have to see what I can find out about that. Not that it really makes any difference, but I don't want to take credit for something else somebody smarter than me said. But if you happen to know anything about it, let me know. Uh, we'll update you on that irrelevancy uh, as soon as I find out any more about it. But now, on to some questions from you. Here is one from my pal Virakana Asura. He says, I would like to propose a possible answer to the seats of skin question. You remember from last time. I have two editions of the Vulgate, you know, St. Jerome's Latin version of the Bible. The first is the 1546 Vulgatum Clementium, which was promulgated by the second session of the Council of Trent. At the time of Vatican II, the Dominicans were charged with updating the Vulgate based upon the wider manuscript access compared to the Counter-Reformation texts. The 1546 Vulgate does say, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, Sedes Palicias, for the seats of skin in 1 Samuel 5.9. I checked, and this is not found in the Hebrew Masoretic text. It does, it does not mention any actions by the men of the city. They're the ones that uh, the Vulgate says made these seats of skin after getting the uh, sacred hemorrhoids or whatever they were when they stole the Ark of the Covenant. Okay. The Dominicans removed this phrase from the 1969 Vulgate. This is also not exactly in the old Greek of the, you know, the Septuagint, of the standard Alfred Ralph's edition, where the only reference to any fabricated objects in 1 Kings 6, I'm sorry, 1 Kings 5, 9 is, uh, let's see, Kai Epoi, oh my gosh, this black screen, Kai Epoiesan uh, Hoi uh, Gathioi, the men of Gath, Autois, can I? Edras. One meaning of the noun edra is euphemistically the seat, as in buttocks, for the ring of the anus. Uh, let's see. Uh, the, the issue is that when Jerome translated the Old Testament into Latin while at Bethlehem, he specifically did not use the Greek sources. Then uh, uh, he gives a uh, reference um, and insisted only on the Hebrew sources to which he had access there. Only the apocrypha are in the old. Uh, let's see. Only the apocrypha are. Wait a minute. Okay. Only the apocrypha are uh, in the Latin from the Greek as he did not translate them. So it seems either Jerome had access to a Hebrew text deviant from the current Masoretic text, or more likely at some point, this strange passage was interpolated into the Vulgate as an interpretation from the Greek, and it became authoritative. I, uh, read this, uh, in uh, 
I think I got a missing word or two. I read this in an issue, but I cannot trace down where. In, in the old Greek, four books of Kings, there are the greatest, you know, that's First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. There are the greatest deviations between the Greek and Hebrew, although Jeremiah is also a problem. And there were different editions of these works. Uh, take a look at uh, Job's and Silva book, Invitation to the Septuagint, page 171. This reading probably came from one of these. Uh, I'm not sure if that's a, well, that's a good possibility. I wonder, you know, why would anybody put it in there? I do not know, but it sort of sounds to me that if you say that, uh, that the uh, men of Gath were afflicted with hemorrhoids, as some Bible translations have. Uh, there are other possibilities, including a bubonic plague and so on. But if you think of it as hemorrhoids, they may have just been trying to underline the degree of suffering it caused the, uh, the, the Philistines by saying they had to create hemorrhoid rings, you know, pillows for people to sit on. Uh, I mean, in the context, I should think it almost has to refer to that, and, and they're probably just saying, you see how bad it was? I don't know. Uh, Varukana adds, uh, by the way, I worked at Forbidden Planet in New York City from about 1987 to 1989. Did I see Robert Price? Uh, no, I used to frequently visit there, but uh, I had moved to uh, North Carolina in January of 1985 and came back to New Jersey in 1989, whereupon I began uh, to go back to Forbidden Planet uh, on my book hunting jaunts. But I, so it's possible we might have uh, overlapped a little bit in '89. Uh, we came back, um, I think, May of '89. But I looked pretty much the same then as I uh, do now, only my hair was uh, less gray and I was a bit thinner, but you'd probably recognize my ugly mug. Uh, sorry I didn't meet you in person, Barakana. Okay, uh, another. Uh, this is Luther. Today I've got a question that is almost a repeat of a question I asked last year, but with a spin. This time around, my question is this. Bultmann says in, Rudolf Bultmann says in Jesus Christ and Mythology, that particularly the conception of the pre-existent Son of God who descended in human guise into the world to redeem mankind is part of the Gnostic doctrine of redemption. Page 17. Uh, this is probably the third or fourth reference I've come across that directly contradicts Dr. Bart Ehrman's statement in his discussion with you at the Mythicist Milwaukee event a few years ago that there is no evidence of Gnosticism that dates back as far as the origins of Christianity. But Bultmann, Metzger, who by the way was uh, Bart Ehrman's teacher, and others seem to state uh, to the contrary without any hint of it being an awkward or unpopular position. Uh, my specific question, 
has some uh, is has some evidence or new consensus developed in the past 50 to 75 years that has somehow undone a prior understanding of the early dating of Gnosticism? And if so, can you explain? Or was Ehrman simply mistaken in that moment? Or as a third option, was he saying something else entirely that I somehow missed or misinterpreted? Well, I'd say that uh, there has emerged more of a consensus though by no means universal, that Gnosticism was not a pre-Christian phenomenon, but this is part of a more complicated... I don't accept that, by the way, but uh, but many who do affirm this in a, a very complex context. Uh, where was the place... Uh, I think it was in Italy uh, where they had this big uh, international conference on Gnosticism in the late 60s, uh, which I'm pretty sure would have been after uh, Bultmann wrote this, where they, well, I, I just, it's just on the tip of my tongue, I can't think of it, uh, but uh, th they started dividing Gnostic, well, let's say texts and, and doctrines and so forth, traditionally all denominated as Gnostic, uh, among various uh, subcategories. Uh, like proto-Gnostic, pre-Gnostic, uh, Gnostic um, tendencies, and then etc., and then full-blown Gnosticism, uh, most uh, widely attested in the second century by Valentinus, Basilides, Bardasanis, and so on and so on. So uh, it, it may kind of depend on semantics, really. Uh, Bultmann, I don't think, had those options open, and even if they're, they're good categories, I, that doesn't really discredit what he said, because uh, probably some of these, these people, uh, the latter day, scholars are would some of them would admit well yeah the uh the idea of the uh son of god descending into this world of darkness and sin uh to uh bring light in the darkness and save the souls of the elect that's so so similar and is so integral to any kind of gnosticism that it's hard to believe that these various gnostic thinkers in the second century all independently came up with it. Uh, it seems like they must have been heirs of, uh, of some underlying historic Gnostic movement. And depending on where you date Simon Magus, that could be the first century. And and I think and and all these Gnostic groups claim that their real father was Simon Magus, uh, and uh, the character from the Book of Acts. Uh, so, um, and, well, the uh, let's say the the heresy hunters said that, while the Gnostics said that the the father of Gnosticism was Paul. And uh, as you know, and this is going to come up in a question in a moment, from F.C. Bauer on, the, uh, the the notion has been much discussed that perhaps the historical Paul and the historical Simon Magus were, were two names of the same guy. Uh, one was just the uh, the uh, Gnostic version, because they're writing after. Uh, meaning that they derived their their doctrine from reading Pauline texts, uh, and however the uh, because 
they the uh, the emerging Catholics didn't like that. Uh, they, I mean, there's hints of that, like in Second Peter, where it says that, which is clearly a second-century work, that the unstable have distorted the writings of our beloved brother Paul, uh, and uh, that implies that they knew that there were people who had some kind of heretical view that traced their views back to Paul. Uh, likewise, the second-century Acts of the Apostles in chapter 19 has Paul give a farewell speech to the Ephesian elders saying, now I know after I'm gone, ravening wolves will appear among your flock, uh, and, and so forth. Simon seems to be a, what uh, René Girard would call the monstrous double of, uh, of Paul, that there were stories about Simon, or originally about Paul, that they wanted to retain, like uh, in, was it Acts... Seven, I think I can never remember this for some reason, where Peter has a conflict with Simon Magus, who wants his recognition as an apostle, and he won't give it. Hmm, does that sound like anything you've read in Galatians? And uh, that's what tipped Bauer off. And uh, so they they didn't want to lose that story. So, but they but they're trying to rehabilitate Paul. Luke is certainly trying to do that in the Book of Acts. So he he changes the name to Simon. Now, Simon Magus may have been a historical character distinct from Paul, and they're simply switching the uh, the story to somebody else uh, who people were already booing and hissing at, or it may be that the name may be part of the sanitizing rewrite. Uh, it's, it's hard to know. Um, but um, what Bultmann basically is doing is saying, this sounds an awful like Gnosticism, it doesn't seem to have much to do, at least with the synoptic Gospels, but it, it sounds very much like John's Gospel. But then again, John's Gospel has numerous close and striking parallels with Mandean Gnostic texts and Valentinian and others. Just read the, uh, well, I have many of them noted in my pre-Nicene New Testament Gospel of John, and or you could read the absolutely terrific commentary on John by Bultmann himself. You read that and you, you realize what he was getting at, that this sounds like Christianized Gnosticism, and that's probably what it was, and that implies that Gnosticism was already around. Uh, so I think that the kind of revisionism at this conference of uh, scholars about Gnosticism is part of the neoconservative turn of New Testament scholarship. In fact, it's uh, where you're trying to distance apostolic Christianity, if there was such a thing, uh, from uh, from Gnosticism, because that would uh, be like uh, finding that you have black sheep in your uh, ancestry and so on. No, 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 no. Christianity is simply a revelation from God. They didn't have to stoop to borrowing phony, crazy ideas from heretics. So I, I think that's that's what happened. It's the same kind of thing as the refusal to recognize that the mystery religions had dying and rising gods before Christianity and that Christianity was just another one of those. It's the same kind of nonsense, in my opinion. 
And today it's even gone so far, though this one is a double-edged sword, as having scholars like Karen King saying there was no Gnosticism, uh, that all these writings like the Nag Hammadi texts and so on didn't come from any one movement. And that's true, but but it's like uh, saying that um, there's no such thing as Christianity. There is only Presbyterianism, Catholicism, Pentecostalism. Nobody would say that. But they're trying to, uh, to, to say that, uh, again, it was certain tendencies that certain people had. It just seems ridiculous to me. It's an attempt to... Uh, like to uh, see the forest and not the trees because you say there aren't any trees, but there are. So I think that uh, that is part of Bart's uh, attachment to evangelical apologetics because that's what he came out of, right? And as he himself uh, happily admits, and he's gradually escaping more and more of it. And eventually I think uh, he'll give up on this too. But then again, I'm... Not a fortune teller. Okay, uh, this from Nick Fury, the agent of the director of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, In a recent episode of The Bible Geek, 1 Corinthians 1.12 was mentioned yet again. I am of Paul, I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. This verse always made me wonder about two separate yet related things. Would the geek care to discuss them one at a time? Thing one, what, if anything, do we know about Apollos? He's listed next to the heavyweights, nay, pillars of Christianity. Uh, Yet, as far as I know, he's not a celebrated figure. Uh, Yeah, that is real interesting. Uh, Doubly interesting in that the Western text that we find in the Codex Bizi uh, and and other sources, but that's the the most unadulterated of them, Apollos, or Apollo, I mean, if you're talking about the Greek god, you would call him Apollos, too. They just sort of simplify, like Paulos becomes Paul. But it just says Apollo or Apollos. But, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, in the... uh, predominant text it just has apollo or apollos but in the western text it has apollonius well there were a lot of people named uh, either or both one is obviously a version of the other but it raises an interesting question uh, that uh, is it possible that the character was originally understood as apollonius of tyana He would have been a contemporary. Uh, He was a wandering teacher and apostle of Neo-Pythagoreanism. He's said to have done miracles, etc., etc. And uh, there's a travel narrative for Paul in the Book of Acts, of course, but in uh, Philostratus's Life of Apollonius of Tyana, you also have, uh, well, much longer involved travel narrative, But in one spot, there is a sequence of visits to this city, that one, and the other one that is exactly the same in both. Well, this has raised the question for some scholars, is is the Christian Apollos, or as the Western text says, the Christian Apollonius, is this supposed to be Apollonius of Tyana uh, being Christianized? Uh, 
then you start thinking of how there's so many parallels between the Gospels and the life of Apollonius of Tyana, heavenly annunciation, a miraculous birth, a wunderkind, child prodigy scene, traveling, exorcisms, healings, resurrection of a young bride on her wedding day, and uh, and on and on, a trial before a fiendish Caesar, uh, an ascension to heaven, an appearance to the disciples, etc., etc., uh, I've never heard anybody discuss that in connection with the possibility that Apollonius is supposed to be Apollos, but it could be. And uh, and because there, as Daryl Dowdy pointed out, if you read carefully the scene in Acts 19, I think it's 18 and 19. I'm beginning to forget what's in in where, but uh, we're told that. Um, that Apollos or Apollonius shows up in Ephesus. He's from Alexandria, Egypt, which is a haven of, uh, of Greek philosophy and, and Jews who were Greek philosophers like Philo. It's It says that he was very eloquent speaking about the way of the kurios, the way of the Lord, but he knew only the baptism of John and then it says, uh, when he ran into Priscilla and Aquila, they saw his great gifts, his knowledge of scripture and his zeal, and that he had some kind of knowledge of Christian things, but he wasn't a Christian. Uh, and was he a John the Baptist sectarian or what? Uh, and they teach him more fully about Jesus, and he gets baptized and begins to began to preach Christianity. Well, Doughty points out that it does not say he was already some kind of Christian. Uh, and uh, the, whether he actually was or not, if he was a historical character, uh, the uh, the goal here by having these two apostolic colleagues, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, straighten him out and give him the fuller knowledge of the Gospels is part of this agenda of Acts to have the expansion of Christianity happen under the careful eye of the apostles in Jerusalem and their delegates. Right? Uh, it's a, it would be a similar thing where Philip gets the Samaritans baptized and converted to Christianity, but they don't get the Holy Spirit until Peter and John come down from Jerusalem to authenticate their conversion, and then they speak in tongues and so on. Uh, it's the same sort of, uh, well, it's not the real thing until the uh, delegates of the apostles or the apostles themselves um, finish the job. And so, uh, you know, it, it's it's strangely ambiguous as to who the Apollos of the book of Acts is supposed to be. Of course, in 1 Corinthians, another possibility is opened in that it, the Corinthians and, and Apollonius is of, a, of Tyana is said in Philostratus's hagiography of him to have stopped in Corinth at one point. So our, uh, when it has the, these uh, quoted slogans here, I am of Paul, I am of Cephas, I am of Apollos, I am of Christ, could that mean that uh, some of the Corinthians were were the Neopythagoreans? They had uh, um, 
become a, a fan club of Apollonius, um, but they were still uh, meeting with, with Christians. Nothing is impossible in these crazy cosmopolitan syncretistic times, right? Uh, so that leads to this second right to directly to thing two here. Uh, he says, um, what, if anything, can be inferred from the fact that in this verse, the supposedly divine Christ is listed among the earthly and presumably known to the readers, church leaders, you know, Cephas, Paul, um, uh, uh, Apollo, Apollonius, or Christ, could this be another vestige of adoptionistic Christology of the kind espoused in the Kenosis hymn, you know, where some people under, like James D.G. Dunn, uh, take that thing, you know, though he was in the form of God, he set it aside and took on the form of a servant, etc., where Jesus is but a mortal man made into a demigod for his unconditional submission to the will of God. Well, I've never thought of it in, in terms of the Kenosis hymn, but I do think that this that the wording of this passage demands that either all four of these names referred to supposed divine saviors, and that uh, each one of them had his own cult. Which is which would be reflected in the apocryphal Acts of the Apostles, where uh, Thomas, John, Peter, Paul, uh, Matthias, Andrew, they are depicted as being virtual second Christs in their own right. Uh, even those have been Christianized, but there are these constant statements that they were just like Christ, that people saw them and thought they were divine. And they say, oh, no, no, you got me all wrong. Or uh, that they saw Christ in the likeness of Peter, uh, James, Thomas, John, etc., now, that seems odd to me, and it, it uh, there are other ways to explain this, but I take that to mean that these four people, including Christ, were uh, understood to be uh, heavenly saviors come to earth, uh, and that uh, this is a fragment from that time. And uh, of, of all of them, the maybe they were all... Uh, disappearing. Maybe they were all running out of members, and since they were the same kind of groups, they uh, joined together, uh, and as, as you know, shrinking congregations sometimes do. Uh, so, uh, the, but uh, in that context, uh, Christos came out on top, and the others were subordinated to him, sort of like the way uh, conquered people accommodated their beliefs to the pantheons of their conquerors. Uh, now, as, as another way of looking at this, you might say the other end of the stick, is that it might imply that um, that uh, it will basically kind of adoptionism, as you suggest, that that. Uh, they they start out as being just gurus, uh, cult leaders without the pejorative uh, connotation, and that uh, somehow Jesus' partisans succeeded in elevating him to a divinity 
uh, whereas the the others didn't make it. Now, they might have because uh, the Mandeans have John the Baptist as an incarnate savior and repudiate Jesus as a false messiah. Uh, So who knows? Uh, or, Or another little piece of the mosaic you ever read the Acts of uh, the Acts? Uh, wait a minute, is this uh, the Apocalypse of Paul from the Nag Hammadi text? I know there are two or three different Apocalypses of Paul, but the one from Nag Hammadi it it has the visionary journey of Paul to the seven heavens, and and he meets the uh, the uh, archons and encounters the demiurge and all this stuff. Jesus is never mentioned in this. Paul becomes the Gnostic Redeemer. Uh, it suddenly dawned on me when I was teaching a, a class uh, on this that, wait a second, is this a vestige of a group where Paul was the Savior and Revealer? It kind of looks like it. If you didn't know better, and you don't know better, that's what the text would suggest. So, uh, so uh, it, it, it's very mystifying, and, and even F.C. Bauer had to come up with what strikes me as a highly unlikely harmonization. He said that uh, the the Christ Party, in fact, I think his first critical New Testament article was on this very passage. He said that must have been. Uh, the another name for the Cephas party, both of them being uh, Jewish legalists. I don't see that. That just seems to me he's trying to get out of a tight spot. Uh, and uh, Gordon Fee, my teacher at Gordon uh, Conwell Seminary, he thought it meant that uh, Paul was telling the Corinthians that they were making too much of their various favorite teachers, and and they're getting in the way of Christ, who should be maintained as number one. Uh, and that would be why he goes on to say, what, 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 is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Uh, all rhetorical questions. Are you implying that's absurd? Uh, so why are you overestimating us? Yeah, that's possible too, but it uh, it's certainly not explicit there. Uh, and uh, so I tend to go with these much weirder radical proposals, and you're kind of uh, going the same place, Nick. Uh, not to hell, I just mean uh, going in that direction theoretically, right? Well, well, well. Um, uh, B. Duncan says, I'm interested in your comments on the book of Zechariah and how it relates to Revelation. How do you interpret the various passages later in the book of Zechariah that some consider to be messianic prophecies? Well, they are kind of messianic prophecies, but they're, I'd rather call them propaganda. What seems to have happened is that in the setting of uh, Zechariah and um, uh, Haggai, who were like a team, there was it was a time of great unrest in the Persian Empire. Uh, there were wars, and I guess uh, some some of the component kingdoms were looking to be independent. And uh, this is referred to in Zechariah, where in this great passage where God says, uh, "I will." shake the throne of kingdoms, etc. And um, this, now, uh, the Persians had already 
established um, Zerubbabel, a, a, a Jew apparently a descendant of the of the line of David or believed to be so, they had made him the, gov- the, the governor of Judea. He was serving at their pleasure. He was a client king like Herod was to the Romans later. Well, uh, and then his colleague was uh, Joshua, not the one you're thinking of, right? And, but uh, a high priest named Joshua. And these two prophets said, oh boy, if this is it, Persia is going to fall and we will gain independence. And the Davidic governor, Zerubbabel, will be crowned anointed one, Messiah. Uh, and then there's some fiddling around with the text and they when they say a similar thing about the priest Joshua. But uh, the, the basic idea is, yeah, they're messianic proclamations. Of course, they were, they were kind of jumping the gun because it didn't turn out that way. Now, as with um, many of these Old Testament passages that have something to do with the divine king, we don't know how much they were thinking of the the mythology, the Christology of the divine king, where the king was God on earth and all that, uh, as in Isaiah and various places, and then Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Um, or if they, the king had, the messianic king had anointed kings, all that means, he'd already been demythologized by the Pharisees, uh, the rabbinic tradition, which was which had embraced monotheism and didn't like the extravagant language uh, of the old divine king mythology and so they they thought if, if you had a son of god in the strong sense in the king you were threatening monotheism as indeed you were uh, though my uh, thinking is that there wasn't any monotheism when uh, ancient Israel had divine kings. But there got to be more and more of a monotheistic theology, and so they had to kind of demote and and uh, demythologize the, the king, whether the past or the anticipated future king, and make him simply a pious man of David's line who would reign justly when he came to the throne. Nothing about him dying for sins and so on. Uh, and uh, so, the oddly enough, the ancient, what's called the royal ideology of the divine kings, was much more like New Testament Christology. So, is New Testament messianism, New Testament Christology, alien to uh, Israelite thinking? Well, no, but it was a good bit different from Judaism in the time of the New Testament, which had become uh, more uh, rationalized, more demythologized, and so on. And so, yeah, the uh, the either way you cut it, uh, the Zechariah thing, where he's basically crowned Messiah, uh, is uh, not about the remote future. It's it's about uh, they were just jumping the gun uh, and uh, speculating basically on uh, the events in their own day. Okay, uh, here's yeah, here's a real interesting from from uh, Nora Bellrose. She says, I've recently been reading your book, The Amazing Colossal Apostle, and your commentaries on the Pauline epistles in the pre-Nicene New Testament. 
Both have been very thought-provoking and insightful. I feel pretty convinced that Marcion or Marcionites were the first to compile the Pauline corpus and that Catholicizing interpolations were added to the corpus later by a pastoral redactor to co-opt Paul for Catholicism. But when I was reading through Winsome Monroe's book, Authority in Paul and Peter, oh, a great book, uh, which you cite extensively in your books, I noticed that she argues that most of the pastoral stratum in the Pauline epistles has to predate Marcion's Pauline corpus because Tertullian cites many passages from the pastoral stratum in his book uh, Adversus Marcionum and doesn't seem to indicate that these passages weren't in Marcion's text. Uh, But is this a correct interpretation of Tertullian? To me, it seems that he is quite ambiguous about what was included in the Marcionite version of the Pauline epistles. While he says they were all mutilated and shorter than the Orthodox versions, I believe uh, he only explicitly says that a particular passage is omitted from the Marcionite corpus, from the Marcionite corpus in a handful of places, such as in Romans 9. Uh, What's your view on this? Does Tertullian prove that some of the pastoral stratum predates Marcion? Uh, No, and the problem has a simple solution. Uh, He only, like, if he's, uh, Tertullian is working from the then standard text, the uh, Catholic text, and uh, if he, like, if he, uh, He's he's complaining about certain passages not being found in the shorter Marcion, Marcionite text because he wants them. He he's discussing passages that uh, imply a continuity between the Old Testament and the New, and when they're not there, uh, like the early couple of chapters of Luke and so on, he says, well, they must have been there because they're in our New Testament. Uh, They're not in Marcion, so he must have uh, censored them. He must have cut them out. But if if you're looking at the pastoral epistles or the pastoral stratum in the other epistles, uh, he... uh, he doesn't engage with them if Marcion doesn't have them. Uh, he's because he may simply be be saying. I mean, these are all. I mean, even specifically anti-Marcionite, as uh, as Dennis Ronald McDonald says in his great book, The Legend and the Apostle. Well, he uh, doesn't want to draw attention to that, and uh, it's. Uh, I guess he he could have done the same with the the others, but uh, he isn't working so much from his from the Marcionite text as he is from the Catholic text, which had all this stuff. Uh, and uh, it is the, the uh, old versus New Testament stuff, the Israel versus uh, Christianity stuff, is not really found in the uh, the pastoral stratum, as I remember, much less the pastoral epistles. Uh, and so uh, there there's. Uh, so there's no reason for him to zero in on that stuff. It's stuff that uh, 
connects uh, Judaism and Christianity. I'd really have to go into a more uh, thorough scrutiny of, of the whole text, but that's my understanding of it. Uh, so I don't, uh, like, well, in fact, well, it may even be simpler than that. Probably the Marcionites simply did not have the pastoral epistles. In fact, we, we know they didn't, presumably because they hadn't been written yet. Uh, and uh, so he's, uh, so it's no surprise there that that stuff wouldn't be uh, in the Marcionite uh, text. He just probably would have thought that Marcion wasn't interested in him, but he, but that's to argue that is a little different from saying he's tampered with common texts. I don't know if that makes any sense, but uh, seems to me that's what's uh, going on there. Well, uh, gee, there is another one coming up on Simon Magus and Paul, but I think lest I repeat myself in the same podcast. And lest I strain my voice, I'm going to close up shop for the moment and try to be back with you again in a few days. Uh, So be sure to be the first on your block to uh, get the Journal of Higher Criticism Schleiermacher issue and, uh, and also the book jesus christ superstition and there's more goodies to come so thanks for being uh uh with me on the bible geek today and i look forward to seeing you again soon hey guys it is ryan i'm not sure if you know this about me but i'm a bit of a fun fanatic when i can i like to work but i like fun too it's a thing and now the truth is out there i can tell you about my favorite place to have fun Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.